Those of you who were here earlier for our pre-service prayer time, remembered I asked specifically for prayer because it's just so much to get through. We're in a series answering questions that you all asked. And sometimes at church, even though we're not a Reformed church, we're not officially a Reformed church. I'm not even vying for us to become a Reformed church. But we throw the words around sometimes. Some of you all would, some of you would say you're Reformed. Uh, I would say I am. And uh, the question came up, uh, some time ago, hey, what does that mean? And I thought, yeah, we never really explain it. We just kind of use words. So last week we saw the first C. There's two C's of what makes some, somebody reformed. And last week we saw that it's, uh, you can say Calvinism. I don't like saying that because it sounds like you just latch on to one dude, drink all his Kool-Aid, and, and like no one else is saying this but this guy throughout history, which is not true. And the second one is covenantalism or covenant theology. We're going to get into that today. Why is it important? Well, we all live inside this, as I put last time, uh, this evangelical neighborhood. And it's okay if we don't all live on the same street, don't all live in the same complex or subdivision. But in the neighborhood called evangelical Christianity, there's a particular subdivision called Reformed Way. And some of us live there. And I think it's just helpful for us to understand why has this been debated? Why do people think about these things throughout all this time? Who's who? What's what? Just to kind of get your bearings, I think it's important to know where you live and not to be, just be sort of a, a theological vagabond or something floating around. Um, but it's okay if it takes a long time to figure these things out because they're, they're difficult. Uh, but they shouldn't divide us. We should recognize that some of us live in s- different subdivisions, but we're all part of the same neighborhood, okay? And uh, we can appreciate each other. There's no way I get through this sermon without ticking somebody off. I just realize, I'm like, that's part of what I'm praying. I mean, I literally, literally somebody left our church. I was like, you don't believe half the Bible because I take a different position on the things that we're going to talk about today. And some, some get really upset. And I understand that. I hope I don't upset you today. I hope I'm charitable and humble because I don't know everything. I'm still trying to figure things out. Uh, but please pray with me. Uh, we need it. I definitely need it. Father, we pray that in the next... Uh, uh, several minutes, whatever, uh, we pray that uh, you would be with us, Father, and allow us to understand that we cherish your word. We want to exalt your name and your word above all things together with you, Father, and uh, we don't want these things to be divisive. We want them to help us get a bearing on how we're supposed to approach Scripture, and we ask for your help in it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say this will be a sermon a sermon is where you take a text and explain the text. So if I stand up here and just talk about history and positions of theology, it was a lecture and not a sermon. It will become a sermon toward the end. But there's just so much groundwork to lay out. And to help you understand why this question is important, the underlying question is the difference between covenantal theology and dispensational theology. We're going to get into that. And anything that I put up here on the slides, you don't have to write it down because I'll have Erica email it out. So if you're on our email list, or if you fill out a connection card, you want to get on our email list, I'll send the slides out. Don't worry about writing everything down that's on the slide. Um, but why is it, why, what is the underlying question? The underlying question is, what relationship does Israel have to the church? That's the underlying question. Between dispensationalism and covenant theology, what is the underlying question? Think. So some of y'all have been in churches where all they talk about is Israel, 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 Israel. Uh, some folks read the Bible in one hand, and the other hand is the newspaper. 
what's going on in Israel, what's going on in the Middle East, and that's how they determine where we are in the timeline. Uh, you grew up with charts and timelines and movies about uh, people getting snatched up and you being left behind. or you, you know, There's all kinds of things that are culturally make us aware. This is what this is about. Okay, So answering that underlying question touches on other questions. Here's just a few of them. No slide for this, just, just listen. Should the United States support Israel today no matter what? No matter what they do, whether it's moral, immoral, the United States should support them because that's God's people. They're the apple of God's eye. Don't you dare touch God's people. That's what this touches on. Is there a secret rapture? Just poof, a bunch of people disappeared. Right? That's what this touches on. Does there have to be a secret rapture? Does there have to be a literal, physical 1,000-year reign after the rapture, but before judgment? So, Christians get raptured out of the earth, right? But before judgment, there's a thousand years of Jesus reigning, there's a temple, there's sacrifices, there's people in glorified bodies, there's people that don't have glorified bodies but are believers, there's people that are unglorified bodies and aren't believers, and we're kind of back to square one in, in many respects. How do you read the book of Revelation? Now, in January, we're going to start a series on the book of Revelation, and one of the reasons why I want to take the time to give thick, robust, lecture-style sermons on this topic is because I want to help prepare you to approach the book of Revelation, and this is why some of us don't read the book of Revelation. We're just really confused getting all this information from all these different places, and we don't know what's going on. There's dragons and prophets, and we don't know what's happening. This touches on that. Is Satan bound now, or is Satan bound later? This is debated, right? This touches on that. How do we read the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament relevant to you directly? Or is it only directly relevant to Israel and only inferentially is it related to you? One of our brothers prayed this morning, Father, give us hearts of flesh because we have hearts of stone. Now, I know dispensationalists that would be like, hey, that's not for you. That was for Israel. You find a different passage in the New Testament, you know. They wouldn't necessarily quite say it like that, although I've heard, I've heard dispensational professors say exactly that. Um, when Abraham looks up at the stars and counts the stars, he's not talking about you. That has nothing to do with you. I read a book uh, by a dispensational author who said all of the Old Testament covenants have nothing to do with you unless you're Jewish. They have nothing to do with you. They have nothing to do with redemption is what the text said. Nothing to do with redemption. You don't find out about redemption for you until you get to the New Testament. So you see how this, this is relevant. You, you may not have been thinking about it this week or this year, but we should. These are, this is a weighty topic. So we've got two broad categories. Uh, one is covenant theology. The other is dispensational theology, and we'll see. Uh, actually, I have control, don't I? Uh, so what is Reformed theology? Part two. And here's covenant theology, okay? So I'm going to give you two graphs just to help you understand where, where things are here. In covenant theology, uh, I check this out. I even got a little, psh, look at that. Boom. Now I'm super legit as somebody was telling me, like, there's power pointers and then people with the laser pointers and then I graduated, okay? All right. Covenant of works is God telling Adam, hey, if you work, you get life. If you break the law, you get death. So covenant theologians say that the first covenant was a, was a deal. If you do what I say and don't eat of this tree, you get life. Um, but then the fall happened, right? Right there. 
And then this covenant of grace, everything that's in yellow, covenant theologians see it as one big covenant of grace just through different iterations. It keeps expanding. It keeps getting bigger. In the beginning, uh, God promises Adam, Genesis 3.15, that the serpent has caused some problems here, but I'm going to send one through the woman's seed that's going to crush the head of that serpent. So hang in there. That promise is going to take care of this, and your fig leaves don't cover you. Uh, the death of animals is going to cover you, picturing that final death that's going to cover you for real in the seed that comes. Now, that, that's not all explained, but as you get further through, it keeps on uh, expanding, getting unpacked, getting bigger. Uh, here we see that this covenant is not just for Abraham's seed, but it's going to cover the whole earth. Here we get specific laws, the Ten Commandments, for instance. This is what God is like. This is what he expects. Here we get the kingdom theme. Uh, now you see that there's a king. We need a king. You can't just have laws. You need a covenant king. That's what the book of Judges is about. They knew the laws were. They had no one to lead them, so they all did what they wanted. It's not enough to have laws. You need someone to, to lead us through it. Jesus comes, fulfills all of it. Genesis 3.15, all the way through. Jesus is the ark. He protects us from the flood. He's the sacrifice that provides us to have a relationship with God. He's the one that fulfills the law. He is the king who was promised to come. And then he wraps it up in this new covenant that takes all of this and ties it into one covenant for all people and then the new earth, okay? That's what covenant theology is like. So what I want you to see is kind of the simplicity. Really two covenants. Covenant of works, that didn't work. Covenant of grace. Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. He's the new Adam. And then he does it on our behalf. He fulfills Adam's role as Adam becomes Abraham, as Abraham becomes Israel, and Israel is represented by Jesus, who comes as the new Adam. Jesus fulfills the, the works covenant, uh, and we get covered by grace, and then we get invited into the new earth. Dispensational theology is a little more complicated. There's an age of innocence. Dispensations are ages, epochs, times where God deals with people in different ways. There was an age of innocence, then there was the fall, and from creation to the flood, there's conscience, and then from flood to Moses, there's human government, but then there's promise, and then there's this law piece from Moses to the prophets, and then prophets to Christ, law covers that, then Jesus comes, then grace, then God invents the church, uh, it's a parenthesis, it's like time out from this whole Israel thing, we're going to do this church thing, and then when the church age is over, we need to go back to Israel. Israel's promises from the Old Testament are now going to be filled in this thousand-year reign here, uh, and then eventually the new earth after that thousand years. So a little more complicated, a lot more divisions in the timelines, and God kind of keeps changing things up, uh, so to speak, as you move through. Um, I don't expect you to memorize all that. I'm just trying to orient you to uh, on the one hand, the simplicity of covenant theology. On the other hand, the complexity of dispensational theology. Now, here's, here's the temptation. You can't choose a theology based on simplicity. But have you ever heard of Occam's razor? Like, sometimes the simplest explanation is the right explanation. That doesn't mean it's always true. Sometimes the more complex explanation is, is correct. Uh, but, but it is a little bit more complicated, the, the dispensational uh, view. So let me talk to you a little bit about the, what do they basically uh, believe. Well, here, here's, uh, in terms of the end time, so I'm kind of zooming in to this spot right here. Imagine us, the camera kind of zooming in. It looks something like this. Here's the parenthetical church age. 
The church was invented completely new in the New Testament. The Old Testament is not a church. There's no church there. Here's a secret rapture. Christians just get, rapture means caught up. Christians disappear, and it's secret because it's not, everyone doesn't see Jesus in the sky. Uh, So that's why there's this U-turn. Jesus comes, takes his people up, but stays up. Then there's a seven years of tribulation. Then after that, Jesus Christ returns, ushers in his millennial reign for a thousand years, physical millennial reign, and then a final judgment, and then the eternal state. Okay, so that's what the end times looks like for them. Look at kingdom is advancing, church, Israel, all kind of one continuous thing, covenant of grace. Jesus returns, final judgment, eternal state, we're done. So this doesn't, this doesn't make for real long movies or a series of books, let's say. Uh, it's, it's, it is simpler. Um, but again, we don't choose based on whether something is simple or not, but that's kind of the layout. Now I want to show you some basic tenets uh, of what they believe. Uh, and the main thing is about how they treat covenants. Again, look at the simplicity from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. A dispensationalist uh, was using this chart, so I just grabbed it from him. And then it all is pointing into new covenant realities. I just added one little tweak. You remember covenant of works first with Adam and then from Genesis 3.15 forward, a covenant of grace that just keeps getting further unpacked as you go through. This guy's own chart. I didn't make this up. This is the dispensational guy's own chart. Here's how they view the covenants. You got this covenant, that covenant, that covenant, that covenant, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the new this one's unconditional, this one's unconditional, this one's conditional, this one's literal. They don't get clear on what's conditional or unconditional there. This one's literal and global. This one's national global. We're not sure if it's literal. Or he didn't specify. This one's unified and it's national, not global. This one's global but not national. This one's messianic and national. Here the church, are you lost yet? That, that's what I'm saying. Okay, so you, it's a lot to track with. Uh, it's really difficult. Um, they, they parse things. Everything gets unpacked, and there's lots of divisions and lots of layers uh, versus that. Okay? And then as they push through, this one is till earth is gone. This one's everlasting. This one's fulfilled in Christ. This one's everlasting. That one's everlasting. And so, again, a lot of parsing, a lot of um, figuring things out. So here's some. You don't have to write this down. I'll send this to you. Uh, And I'll try to move through this quickly. Covenantal theology, two ways God has dealt with man. Dispensational, several ways God deals with man. Covenant, he had works, that didn't work, and then grace, that's it. Then here it's like, well, there's innocence, then there's conscience, then there's law, then there's government, and then then there's kingdom. Like, there's all these different ways. Covenant of Scripture, uh, the second one there, the covenants of Scripture are directly related to everyone. Old Testament covenants of Scripture are mostly only for the Jews. I covered that earlier in the intro. Under CT, we'll call it CT and DT, under CT, Israel was always God's congregation, expanded to include Gentiles. Under DT, Israel is one people of God, the church is a separate people, a parenthesis in history. Under covenant, both literal and figurative interpretation of Scripture, dispensational theologians espouse a very literal interpretation of Scripture. And uh, we're going to get into that later, because actually... I think most debates spend time on these, and I want to spend time here today. I think this is the big one, all right? I mean, they're all big. 
Jesus fulfills, that touches on this one, Jesus fulfills all the promises of God to Israel, even if they don't play out in the literal way described by the Old Testament. So God makes all these promises to Israel, and here we are in 2022, and not all of those promises have happened. So dispensationalists say we need that, thir- that thousand years of literal politics and wars and stuff happening because we need to fit it into the timeline. The covenantal guys are like, he fulfills it in different ways. Maybe it's probably figurative. So, for instance, uh, will there be a temple in that thousand-year reign? These guys say, yeah, there has to be. Because the Old Testament says there's going to be a temple with sacrifices and priests. These guys are like, how can you have a temple with sacrifices and priests when the New Testament tells us Jesus fulfilled that? So these guys say, it's figurative, a figurative temple. We're the temple. Jesus is the priest. And these guys are like, no, it literally says there's a temple. So I'm just giving you an example of how the debate uh, ensues. All right, so let me give you an analogy that I hear over and over again. Dispensationalists, when they kind of say, here's what we don't like about covenantalism. Imagine a father. uh, Well, here's how covenantalists would say it. Imagine a father, right? There's a bigger guy, promises the son a bike. I promise you a bike for your birthday. When the birthday happens, he doesn't give him a bike. He gives him an expensive sports car. The covenantalists are like, is that kid going to complain? I cannot believe you got me a, a Beamer. I wanted a Huffy, right? The covenantalists are like, God's not a liar. He just did better than he said he was going to do. So the promise was, I'll take you to Walgreens to get a snack. And then when the day came, instead of Walgreens, you went to Six Flags and got snacks there and rides and everything else. See, that's how the illustration works. These guys are like, but he said Walgreens or whatever, right? He said bike. He didn't say car. And what's worse, what these guys really don't like about this illustration, what's worse about it is not only did it turn from, I don't know why the color changed, my bad, but this guy's confused because... The dispensationalists are like, you didn't just promise him a bike and give him a car. You promised him a bike, got a car, and gave the car to somebody else. The Gentiles. But he promised the car to the first guy. So the covenantalists are like, man, we're all one big family, man. Stop dividing everything, right? And these guys are like, Scripture is the, the one that divides it. Those promises are to Israel. You're not Israel, so they should get the bike. Period. And so they have to map out their timelines accordingly. They have to read Revelation accordingly because it has to fit uh, the literal, physical uh, promises of the Old Testament. Okay, so that's a a little uh, analogy that can help. I want to move into uh, as graciously as I can. Three hesitations I have with dispensational theology. Now, I grew up with dispensational theology. I went to Moody, which is a bastion of dispensational theology. Theology. I've got a lot of respect for a lot of professors and pastors who are dispensational. Many of them uh, uh, have been really formative for me in my walk with Christ and in my calling to ministry. But I want to give you three hesitations that I have with dispensational theology. And I say hesitations because I'm not calling it a heresy. I'm not up here saying if you're dispensational, please don't come to this church or, or anything like that. Um, nothing, nothing like that at all. But I, three things I think for us to think about that are important. And the first one is, I think, a misunderstanding when the dispensationalists call Reformed people replacement theology. They call it, oh, you believe in replacement. 
And what they mean is, God goes, hey, Israel, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and it's going to be forever. No matter what you do, son, I'm going to get you that car. I'm going to get you that bike. No matter what you do, it's on me because I'm the one that does it. Okay? And then eventually, God is just like, you know what? You guys are just too terrible. I'm going to go across the street and get, get another kid. Okay? And they're saying, well, if you believe that, then God replaced his wife. To change the analogy, right? Because God uses a lot of wife analogy. Or replace his child and brought some other, another child into the house and kicked the first child out. And that's replacement theology. But covenant theologians never use the word replacement because they don't believe in replacement. So what they believe in looks a little bit more like this. And if you remember when we were in Romans, uh, that's why I'm not going to spend too much time on this because you can go back to our Roman series and, and where we cover this. But here's the tree is not Israel. The tree is faith. It's a tree of faith. Now, Israel was in there. Now, you remember Paul said not all Israel is actually Israel because just if you were born ethnically as a Jew doesn't mean you made it because if you didn't have faith, you're not really in. Is that a New Testament reality? That's an Old Testament reality, okay? That's, that's Old Testament, okay? But then Gentiles are grafted in. That's different than lopping off this branch and putting Gentiles in its place Gentiles are grafted in, and while Gentiles are grafted in, Israel has a, a huge falling out. Uh, they rejected Jesus, and be, because they rejected Jesus, they're steeped in hardness. There are believing Jews today. There are Jews coming to Christ, but they're not coming to Christ like people are coming to Christ in China. They're not coming to Christ like people are coming to Christ in South America. They're just not, or, or Africa, Okay. These Gentiles are still, the floodgate opens for Gentiles to come in, and we're still seeing that across the globe. This is why missionary work is so important. But that doesn't mean Gentiles replaced it here. And as we saw in the book of Romans, here's where I disagree with a lot of covenant theologians. I believe there's a, a return for ethnic Israel. I don't think it's a physical temple. I don't think we need a thousand years for it. I think at some point, before everything's all said and done, that hardening of Israel is going to turn into softening, and we're going to see... Just like with you know, China, Africa, South America, we're going to see a wave, an influx of uh, Israelites. And if you want more on that, you can go back to our Roman series on that. But that's not replacement, see? It's not replacement. The tree has branches, and that's okay. I mean, it's, it's everybody joining in on this thing that we can say is faith in Christ. So that's my first reason why I hesitate. I don't think the church is new. I think if we think of this as the church, we've always had a church. What does church mean? Church means called out ones, a congregation. How many times does the Old Testament refer to Israel as God's congregation? Over and over and over and over. In fact, in the book of Acts, Stephen refers to Israel as God's church in the wilderness. So to say the church was born in the New Testament and there is no church in the Old Testament... Church is not a steeple. It's not, when you look up, this is not church. Church is a congregation. It's an assembly. It's a called out group of people that's separate from everybody else. And that's what Israel always was. Okay? And could a non-Israelite be a part of that church? Yeah. They're in Jesus' lineage, lineage, right? So it was always a mixed group. We're just talking about emphasis. It's mostly Gentiles right now, but eventually there will be another influx of Israel as well. So not replacement. Second uh, reason really quickly is the time and nature 
of uh, dispensational theology coming on the scene. I really hesitated to put this one out there, so I'm going to try to move quickly because I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, you don't take a vote to see what's most popular and jump on that, okay? Uh, I want to show you how throughout the history of the church, dispensationalism is very new, and I also wonder if it's already starting to wane. So it's young, it's reactionary, and I wonder if it's starting to wane. Let me move through real quickly to show you. Uh, so John Nelson Darby is credited with basically bringing uh, dispensational theology onto the scene. That's when he lived. You know, he died in 1882. Schofield picked up on it. And Schofield made this the first study Bible. So you've got the Bible and then a bunch of notes. And all those notes push dispensationalism, dispensationalism, dispensationalism. The first study Bible that anyone ever had all those notes were dispensational, 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 okay? So this took over. Everyone's buying this Bible. It's the new hotness. Uh, D.L. Moody, um, you, know, you can read a book like Guaranteed Pure. I forget the name of the author, uh, where he tracks that D.L. Moody wasn't really a theologian. He was an evangelist. But right at that time, dispensational theology was really taking off, especially with regard to premillennialism. That's a whole other thing, but we've kind of touched on it already. And uh, for financial support, Moody kind of made friends with dispensationals to bring some financial support to the school that he wanted to start. I'm not saying Dale Moody's a bad guy for doing it. I'm just saying Dale Moody, dispensationalists claim him. I'm like, yeah, I mean, he, he was like, all right, sure. He, he wasn't really pushing it all that hard. Then in the early 1900s, you had the rise of Pentecostalism. And Pentecostals, as, as far as I know, are, are very dispensational or have been very dispensational and as Pentecostalism expanded and, and grew uh, dispensationalism expanded and grew but look at, the, look at the timeline the church existed for 1800 plus years before anybody knew about those charts that doesn't make it wrong but I think it is a hesitation uh, to think about then, uh, you know, it was made popular because it's kind of exciting. Who's the Antichrist? Isn't that fun to think about? Is somebody the Antichrist now? Is Trump the Antichrist? Who's the, who's the Antichrist? Some guy in the Middle East? What's Russia doing? What's Russia doing? Turn to the Bible. Isn't there kind of like a, uh, what's the Dan Brown series, The Code, you know, <laughs> where you're kind of, you know, the, the Bible almost becomes like a, I don't know, this weird mystical crystal ball to kind of look into uh, the happenings of things. I don't, again, that doesn't make it wrong. It does make it exciting, and you can crank out 15 books uh, talking about it. Who are dispensationalists alive today? Now, this is just off the top of my head. I didn't spend weeks researching this, but I try to think of names that are popular. You know, John MacArthur would be probably the most popular. He uh, describes himself as a leaky dispensationalist. I'm not sure what that means. But it's like, I'm not a full-on dispensationalist. I still have some leftovers. And, you know, um, Erwin Lutzer, David Jeremiah, Tony Evans, Chuck Swindoll, Char Charles Stanley. Are these familiar names? Okay, they're on the radio. They're on the TV, a lot of them. They would all hold to dispensational theology. Then I try to think of uh, who would be covenant theologians I would know of, um, that you might know of. You know, Piper, Keller, Carson, Vody Bauckham, Al Mohler, Tim Challey is the blogger guy. James White, The Apologist, Paul Washer, Heart Cry Ministries, David Platt, that radical book that came out a few years ago, Kevin DeYoung, Matt Chandler, Carl Truman, some of us have read his books, 
Uh, Mark Dever, Nine Marks, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and all those books, that's Mark Dever and his guys. Sinclair Ferguson, we read his book, Maturity. Michael Reeves, uh, Michael Kruger, I've, I've passed out those guys' books here. They're cranking stuff out. Uh, all the CGN pastors that I meet with would be Covenant Theology. Most five-stone pastors, I hope that's okay to say, Gordon, because it doesn't divide us. So case in point, can five-stone pastors get along and some are dispensational, some are covenant? Yes, we do it all the time. But, you know, most, most guys are, especially those <clears throat> that are younger, um, the younger pastors, right? And that's one of the things I want to show you, right? Look, uh, here we go, right here. What's something these guys all have in common? They're really old. That's not a bad thing. I'm just saying. I was trying to find young guys and had a hard time finding young guys. And then when I go here, I'm like, all right. If I'm youngish, then these guys are kind of in my age category. Kevin DeYoung, Tim Challies, um, you know, David Platt is a younger guy. Michael Reeves, not as old as some of the other guys, right? The guys that work with Mark Dever, some of those guys are younger. These guys are younger. You think of conferences, uh, Together for the Gospel, except for Mark MacArthur, all covenant theology. Uh, the Gospel Coalition, most of those guys are covenant theology. So it's, it's becoming harder and harder to find younger dispensational authors. So I, I just wonder, is it, has it kind of had its heyday? And after so many supposed antichrists, we're kind of like, maybe we're doing the wrong thing looking for the antichrist every time there's a war, you know? Um, so I, I wonder if it's waning. Okay, here's the biggest reason. The biggest reason, and I'm going to take us to Luke 24. You can turn there, and we're going to try to move through that really quickly. I want to be mindful of our time, but I think this is uh, the most important. I think it's the biggest reason why I hesitate to embrace or to stay with dispensational theology. Not that I ever wave the flag of it, but um, I find myself moving out of it and moving into covenant theology. And the third and the biggest reason is that uh, dispensational uh, theologians, pastors, <clears throat> they hesitate or refuse to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Unless the New Testament forces them to see it. So let me, let me say that again. When you're reading the Old Testament and you're like, oh, I think this is talking about the Messiah. I think this is talking about Jesus. They would say, stop it. Unless... A clear verse from the New Testament says, no, seriously, that's about Jesus. Then they're like, oh, fine. But everything else is not about Jesus. Now, I am not making this up. I, I've, I've been with the professors. I, I've read many of the books. This is their position. The reason why, and I skipped this earlier, uh, why, did, why did it catch on so hot in the, in the 19, early 1900s? Well, because it was a protection, a wall against liberalism, and liberal Christians were like, you can read the Old Testament or the New Testament, and it could be whatever you want. It doesn't matter if Jonah was swallowed by an actual fish. It doesn't matter if Jericho had actual walls. Archaeologists haven't found those things yet. Maybe it's not true. But what matters is the figurative interpretation. The walls of your heart, right? Or whatever. And dispensationalists, thanks be to God, came on the scene like, no, literal. Literal interpretation. What God's Word says is true. And it's literally true. You don't just turn it into a fable. Uh, and so that it was catching on with Christians. Like, yeah, if we're going to protect against liberal, crazy, weird interpretations, we need to interpret literally. And they held on to that to the point where now you can't do any kind of a figurative interpretation, even though the New Testament authors do it all the time. 
So they would say, and I was told, like when I was an undergrad at Moody, you can't do what the apostles do. The apostles read the Old Testament, and they see Jesus there, but you're not an apostle, are you? I'm like, no, I'm not an apostle. Well, then you don't do it, right? That's the problem I have. I think dispensational theologians need to make room for figurative interpretation to see Christ in the Old Testament because we're supposed to, because we're supposed to see Christ there. I want you to turn to Luke 24 if you haven't already. And in this particular passage, you'll remember Jesus is coming alongside, resurrected Jesus is coming alongside two disciples who are upset that Jesus uh, was killed. Uh, And I want to just read straight through uh, verses 13. Uh, We'll go, um, let's see how far I want to go here. Uh, We'll stop it at 35. Now we'll go a little farther. Here we go. Let's just start with verse 13. All right. That very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus walks alongside them. They don't know it's Jesus. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. It is now the third day. Remember that. Verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they, had, they didn't find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us, or some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they hear witnesses to the resurrection. They're still not getting the resurrection yet. So then Jesus chimes in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish and slow of heart, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's like, you fools should have seen it coming. Why? Because it's all in the Old Testament. Then he starts walking them through the Old Testament. You see it in Moses. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in the Proverbs. You see it in the prophets. You see it in Genesis, the Torah. And he's walking them through, showing them, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, and you should have known it. He doesn't give them a lecture like, I know, I get it, you're not apostles, you're just regular disciples. You fool, you should have seen it. Okay, and then it continues. So they drew near to the village which they were, to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Man, Jesus is awesome. He's just playing it off like he's going to, he knows he's going to get invited. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with, at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broken and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. 
That's weird. And then verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Can I just pause there a second? Have you ever read the Old Testament? You're like, ugh. If you see Jesus in it, your heart burns within you. And I think this is why we have so many Christians who just don't give a rip about the Old Testament. It's not for me anyway. But Jesus shows them how he is the Old Testament. And he's like, man, didn't our hearts burn within us? Why do the hearts burn? Because their hearts lacked faith. And now they're gaining faith that they didn't have because of the Christ-centered interpretation of Scripture. Verse 33, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then uh, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's press forward. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, he's back, stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he broke it and ate before them. Notice, touching his scars still didn't make them believe. You ever have someone in your life that's like, if Jesus just showed up in my living room one day, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you still wouldn't. But how does Jesus invoke or incite faith? The same way he did on the road. Old Testament Bible study with him at the center. Verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, those are the three Hebrew categories of the Old Testament. So all of it, all of the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, now remember earlier I said, remember the the three-day thing? Hold on to that. Here it is again. Thus it is written, in all those places in Scripture, right? In the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And on the third day rise from the dead. We're going to come back to that. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his na- uh, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's saying the Old Testament promised this gospel that you're now going to proclaim. And when he unpacks it, he says that the Old Testament, Moses, prophets, Psalms, and the law, or the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, they must be fulfilled. Everything in written in them must be fulfilled. Open their minds to understand, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now here's a question, a literal question. I'm going to throw it out there and see what you all come up with real quick because we've got to move. Where in the Old Testament... Does it say that the Messiah would die and in three days rise? Anybody? Just throw it out there. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to make fun. Well, Jonah's one. Okay. Does Jonah predict it literally or figuratively? Jesus refers to Jonah and says, Jonah said uh, that I would rise in three days, essentially. He's referring to Jonah as the sign. I'm not going to give you a sign. You already have a sign. Jonah. Jonah is the sign. 
But Jonah never stands up and tells Nineveh, there will be a Messiah. He's going to be born as a baby. He's going to grow up. He's going to get killed and be in a tomb for three days. He never says that. Jonah gets swallowed up by this fish. He's basically dead for three days and then gets regurgitated, walks up, wipes off the kelp, and keeps walking and starts preaching, right? So the only way to get to a three-day resurrection from Jonah is figurative interpretation. Any other takers? Okay, Abraham and Isaac is a big one, okay? So let's look at that really quickly. So Luke 24, Jesus demands that we see it in the Old Testament, but there's no literal way to see it. Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. You have to interpret that figuratively to get to Jesus. Hosea 6.2 is one. After two days, he will revise us, revive us. This is Israel. On the third day, he will raise us up. That's not specifically talking about Jesus unless Jesus is the representation of Israel and then fulfills it in a figurative way. I mean, even though he literally dies, but this is not a literal prediction. And then Genesis 22 that Will just brought up, on the third day, Abraham is going to take Isaac to sacrifice Isaac. And it takes three days to get to that place of sacrifice. And you remember the author of Hebrews tells us that uh, Abraham considered God was going to raise him from the dead. So if you ever wondered, what was Abraham thinking when he was going to plunge the knife into his son Isaac's chest? Well, Hebrews tells us what he was thinking. I guess I'm going to kill him, but Jesus still has to fulfill his promise. And there's no way to fulfill, or God still has to fulfill his promise. You can't fulfill the promise with a dead son, but I guess you could fulfill the promise with a resurrected son. So I'll kill him, and then God will raise him from the dead, and then we'll come back down from this three-day journey. So it took three days. He considered God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's all I'm trying to, the point that I'm trying to score with you. There is no way to escape Jesus' rebuke when he says, you have to see me in the Old Testament. You have to see my third-day resurrection in the Old Testament. If you stick to a literal dispensational hermeneutic, you cannot obey Christ in Luke 24. I think that is a major problem. That is a major problem. I was at a conference. Dispensational professor stood up and told the entire group of professors and, and preachers and pastors, I want to talk to you how I would preach Genesis 1 and 2 and not mention Jesus. Like, it's a good thing. Like, he's saying, yeah, I, I'm so literal. I'm so expository. I would preach Genesis 1 and 2 and not mention, mention Jesus one time. I would even preach Genesis 3.15, the promise of the, he, the serpent's head crusher. I would preach Genesis 3.15 and not mention Jesus. I was gripping my desk like, What? And I didn't want to make a big scene. So after the session, people are grabbing their bags. I go up to the desk and I go to the professor. So imagine you're a pastor and you're at a church and you're preaching Genesis 1 or 2. The world is formless and void. There's chaos. There's darkness. But now you see the Spirit hovering. And out of this chaos, God brings order. He brings order. And in creation week establishes this order. What happens after that? Chaos ensues again. They bite the fruit. They break the... the the, the law, the command of God, and sin enters the world. And there's still a garden, but now it's a garden with thorns. And there's still work, but now it's work with labor. And there's still birth, but now it's birth with, with the, the pain that women have to experience when they give birth. There's this curse that enters and brings chaos to the order that God made. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Are you serious? No, I asked them. I was like, is that how you would preach it to your congregation? Well, I would talk about the kingdom theme and how Yahweh is our king. Never mind the fact that Genesis 1 or 2 doesn't say anything about king. 
Where's he getting king from? Literal interpreter. So he's allowed to take kingdom themes and bring it back into Genesis 1 and 2, as long as that king isn't Jesus. So I asked him, I, I mean, I'm looking around because I don't want to make a scene. I'm like, but who's the king? Well, you know, God. I'm like, but who does God say is king? I'm like, your congregation knows who's, knows who's king. You know who's king. But somewhere along the way, you adopted a hermeneutic, an interpretation of scripture that disallows you from seeing. I cannot see Jesus here, and I don't want to be in that place. I think that's an issue. There are other things with dispensationalism that I can stomach, and I, I get it, the timelines and the charts, and maybe there's a thousand years. Maybe I'm reading Revelation wrong. I don't know. But when you read Genesis and not allow to get to Christ, I think that's a problem. The takeaway this morning, I think, is read the Old Testament. I think it is directly relevant to you. I think all of those covenants are about Christ. And if they're about Christ, they're about how God makes unity with man. They're about how God makes peace with man. Dispensationists would agree with that. They just would get there through a long route. I think it's a much more direct route. I want you to love the Old Testament. I want you to read the Old Testament. I don't want you to read the Old Testament to evangelize Jewish friends. I want you to read, I mean, do that. But I want you to read the Old Testament because it does involve you and it is connected to you. And I want us to see Christ and I want our hearts to resonate with Christ as we're reading even Old Testament scriptures and the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts as well. Let me close in prayer. Father, we think about all these truths, difficult truths, and uh, we're thankful that even all those names we put on the screen, that we, are, we can call them friends, we can call them faithful ministers of the gospel. We don't all have to agree on all these categories to be united, to be like-minded. But I do pray that we would uh, challenge maybe some of the things that we grew up with. I pray that you would help me to challenge even the new things that I'm, I'm continuing to learn. Uh, and may we all approach these things in humility, Father. May our hearts um, be on fire for Christ. And we pray that all of our doubts would subside as we continue to pour over Scripture and see how you've authored and orchestrated this awesome plan to include everyone, that there's no wall between Jews and Gentile, but that we are all united in Christ, that we can form one temple together in Jesus Christ, the temple of God himself. We close in this song in appreciation and gratitude for your glory. We do 